Hello, everybody. Welcome again to the Keto Endurance Podcast. Right when my dogs are barking, they were completely quiet before I hit record. But I have just um, a great resource of information, Amy Berger, who has written the book on Alzheimer's and dementia. And she also has a very uh, fun to read and interesting blog. Uh, what's the website for your blog? Um, it's tuitnutrition.com, T-U-I-T nutrition.com. Yeah, that, and that's also her Twitter handle. You can see Amy a lot on Twitter, and I just love your posts. And so um, thank you so much, Amy, for being on with me. Yeah, no problem. So can you tell me about the background of why you decided to write a book on Alzheimer's and dementia? Yeah, so I... Um, don't have any family history of Alzheimer's. So, you know, why, why would I care about this? Um, it was <clears throat> several years ago, I read Gary Taubes' book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. And he has a chapter in there where he mentioned a connection between glucose, insulin, and Alzheimer's disease. And it was the first time I'd ever heard of that. And when I read that book, I had already been, uh, you know, following a low carb way of eating for a couple of years. So I, I you know, knew a fair bit about the different health conditions that it's good for, but I'd never heard that before that there is a, you know, a, a role for like dysregulated glucose and insulin in the brain that could be related to Alzheimer's. And, um, about three or four years after I read that book, I was in graduate school for nutrition and I had to pick a thesis topic and I had no idea what to, you know, what to research. And I thought to myself, what is something that I would actually enjoy, re you know, researching, enjoy learning more about and, and something that I could write this huge paper on that had not already been written about a million times that I wasn't just going to rehash things that had already been published a million times. And I said, you know, I'm going to go back to that Alzheimer's thing and see if there's even enough research on it to write a research paper. And when I started digging around, even just initially, like doing my initial search of the medical journals, I was astounded by how much there is. This is everywhere. It's all over the scientific journals. It's all over the medical publications. And nobody's talking about it. Nobody was bringing this information to the people who need it the most, which is the people affected by Alzheimer's and their loved ones and caregivers. And so after I wrote my thesis on this, I, I couldn't keep it to myself because I truly believed, and I still believe, that this is potentially life-saving and life-changing information. So I turned the thesis, you know, I expanded it, made it much more, you know, readable, many more resources into a little ebook PDF that I sold on my website and a publisher found it. And they basically offered me a book deal to turn it into like a quote unquote real book. And that's how it happened. So I'm, I'm just glad it's out there in the world now because I, I really think that people deserve to have this information and nobody else is giving it to them. They're not hearing it from their neurologist. They're not hearing it from their doctor. And I don't know why, because this information is not new. It's not even all that controversial when you look at the, at the mechanisms and it's just nobody's talking about it. I have a suspicion why I think it's not being promoted out there. I, um, a little background about me. I worked in uh, assisted living homes and, as an exercise instructor and a personal trainer, and I trained seniors for eight years, senior citizens, and in the recreation centers here in Arizona in Sun City and Sun City West. 
And in assisted living homes, they're following the guidelines put out by the USDA. As you know, that those guidelines are not for health. Those guidelines are to sell commodities. And I think that that's probably a big reason why people are putting it out there. And people make drugs are not, uh, not uh, for something as simple as changing your diet to fix a problem that they want to make a pill for. Well, I think that's part of it, but that's, that's sort of after the fact, like when somebody already has this illness and they're in a home and they're institutionalized, those institutions are beholden to the official guidelines. You know, these people are only allowed to have X amount of fat per day. They have to get X amount of vitamin C per day, whatever it is. And the dietitians that work there have to, you know, create meal plans based on that. But why is nobody talking about what this disease actually is and what's causing it, what's going wrong in the brain, you know, to talk about the diet is even after the fact. Um, I, I, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I honestly don't think they're trying to cover it up. I honestly think a lot of the, the family physicians and even maybe some of the neurologists just don't know. They haven't read the stuff I've read, but right. that's not an excuse. That's unconscionable. I'm not a doctor. I'm a nutritionist. I went looking for this information and it's everywhere. All you have to do is look for it. So I think, unfortunately, that these doctors, they just don't have time to keep up with the latest developments, even though these are not the latest developments. This stuff that I'm talking about with Alzheimer's goes back at least 20 or 30 years. These, these findings are not new, um, but it takes that long to trickle down. It takes that long to come from the laboratory and from the research you know, institution down into the average MD's office. So I, I think that's part of it. It's just they don't know. Right. But if you do look for this, if you go digging and trying to do some research into Alzheimer's, there's so much literature connecting insulin resistance, deranged glucose metabolism uh, in the brain, and they even call Alzheimer's now type 3 diabetes or diabetes of the brain. Sometimes they call it brain insulin resistance. And it is so everywhere in the journals that you have to intentionally be ignoring it to miss it. And that's what angers me. That's where I do feel like a teeny tiny bit of conspiracy because you have to be willfully pretending not to see it, to not see it. Right. Well, yes, I agree with you. And I think a lot of doctors and the people working in assisted living homes, they very much care about their, the people there. They're very caring, loving people. And that, uh, and even if they do know that that's uh, an option, that the doctors aren't aren't pro providing that information. I think some of it is that, like you said, the trickle down theory. By the time something gets published, it's years. By the time it's peer reviewed, and then by the time it ends up in a textbook, you know that's years later. And then someone goes to medical school, and then they leave medical school, and they're busy. From mm -hmm. and even though they have to have continuing education, that there's a big lag in time there. I mean, look at the Ansel Keys's information on saturated fat. Just now, you know, we're figuring out that those are bad ideas. But you know that he came out with that in the 40s and 50s. And yeah, I mean, I'm not. I I am not pointing a finger at all. I mean, right. I think that the people who work in those places, of course, are well intentioned and they they care for their their patients, but 
at some point we have to stop making excuses. You know, at some right. point we got to get our heads out of the sand. And I, I think I've said in other interviews, like I think part of it too is that even if they do maybe know about some of this, some of this research, it's very hard for them to wrap their minds around the possibility, the mere possibility that this could be a dietary and lifestyle illness in the same exact way that heart disease is, that type 2 diabetes is, that PCOS is, that infertility is, that all of these other issues that have exploded in incidence over the last few decades, we take it for granted that there's a diet and lifestyle role, if not the primary role in those conditions. Nobody even questions that. Like if you have type 2 diabetes or you have heart disease, you should probably change your diet. We could argue about what the best diet might be, but nobody argues that that's a factor. And yet, when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, we just throw our hands up like, Stephanie, we have no idea where this is coming from. Yeah. This disease could not possibly, it couldn't possibly be diet and lifestyle the way all those other things are. Well, I, ha I think that I agree with you and that cancer fits in that category too. Like people are saying like cancer just poofs. We don't know how cancer started. You go to the American Cancer Society and it's a similar thing. Uh, my question for you is, do you think things are changing? Like, do you see little cracks? I know you were talking about the book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, which I've read too. And that was one of the books that sort of pivoted me or, um, into a different mindset. And then, you know, I went on that little breadcrumbs to find out all this other additional information. But it seems to me, I feel like that the information is getting out there a little bit more. But my friend Peter Defty, who we were talking about, who's coached a lot of record-holding athletes with a fat-adapted or keto-adapted approach to nutrition, he said, Stephanie, it's not changing. It's just that you are immersed in the field. And so you think it is, but it's not. So do you, what's, what are your view, one side or the other? Um, or in the middle? I, I'm in the middle. I think, um, I do think there, he's right. There's an aspect to, you know, we think this is everywhere. We think everybody knows about this because this is where we live. This is the, the professional bubble that we're in on Twitter, on Facebook. We follow and interact pretty much exclusively with people who think the same way we do. Um, and so it's easy to think that everybody thinks this way. But if you go to the grocery store, Go to the supermarket, look at what's in people's carts, or just take a walk up, up and down every aisle. This is clearly not trickling down yet. I will say, I mean, it's getting out there because if it wasn't getting out there, I wouldn't get multiple emails a week from people asking me about this way of asking about low carbon ketogenic diets. So it's spreading, but I think it's spreading in little pockets. Um, certainly it's not getting to the Alzheimer's community. I can tell you that they're still, you know, ostriches with their head in the sand or flamingos or whatever bird it is that does that. <laughs> but, um, I think it's ostr It is ostriches. I You're think it's right. ostriches. It's not flamingos. <laughs> no, not flamingos. But, um, I, I think it will trickle down, but it's going to take decades. It's not going to be months or years. It's going to be decades because if you even look at type two diabetes and obesity, Dr. Atkins wrote his first book 45 years ago, 45 years ago. And there are still people who think the only way to lose weight is to eat special K and get on the treadmill. And how's that working for them? Yes. So I, I think, I think, you know, Peter Defty is probably right that 
we think it's everywhere, but it's, it's not. It is spreading, but it's spreading like very, very slowly in very tiny ways. Unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately. What medical did, so when you were studying your, going back to your master's and you read good calories, bad calories. So in your program, were they promoting a low fat diet or low carb or um, what was their emphasis at the, the school that you were going to? Right. Well, I went to the University of Bridgeport and I specifically chose Bridgeport because I knew they wouldn't preach the food pyramid to me. Um, there are five fully accredited naturopathic medical colleges in the U.S., and Bridgeport has one of them. And even though their nutrition institute was separate from the naturopathic school, I knew just by the presence of the naturopathic medical school there that this institution as a whole would be more open-minded to alternative views, you know. Um, and you can, you know, some people think naturopathy is quackery, some people don't, whatever you think. In my mind, that told me that they would be open to less conventional things. And um, certainly, I, and, and I went to, I got my degree in nutrition several years after I was already eating low carb and had already been researching and learning about it on my own. So I was able to take the biochemistry we learned and take the physiology we learned and like put it in the context of low carb so that I'd be like, oh, that's why low carb does what it does. Oh, that's why this thing works, or that's why this particular nutrient is so helpful. So, um, no, I, my, my professors didn't preach any particular diet. Um, they, they weren't like low carb keto, but they definitely weren't low fat. They really, I, I respect them. They did a good job of talking about mechanisms. This is, this is how the human body works. This is how the anatomy is arranged. This is how the biochemistry works. And it's, it's not that, I mean, I guess you're left to come to your own conclusions based on that, which is really interesting because there were people in my class that were vegetarians. There were people in my class that ate very differently than I did. And yet we all learned the same science, but we interpreted it differently. And, um, I can say that while, while they didn't, you know, nobody preached any particular diet, they all basically trashed the food pyramid. They all said that that was crazy and that nobody needed to be eating that much carbohydrate and that much grain, but nobody was, you know, talking about like putting butter in their coffee either. So it was, I felt like it was a good in between. And I chose Bridgeport partially because I felt like it was one of the few schools where I could get not the conventional thinking and still have it be a fully accredited, legitimate Pro, you know, degree program. Right. That you could take that degree and actually use it for a job or put it on an application and yeah, like that's, that's garbage on paper. Right. <laughs> the, my, um, talking about a, a different conclusions and stuff, I think that there is some genetic differences in people that we're always, we're, we reference things to our own framework and how we feel. My husband eats a much different diet than me. He eats a, he still eats a lot of protein and fat, but he doesn't, uh, he also consumes a fair amount of carbohydrates, but he also has the metabolism of a hummingbird. And he's so, he's six foot seven, weighs 165 pounds. So he's, wow. I know, skinny money. It's hard, hard for him to even gain weight. If I ate like him, I'd weigh 300 pounds. Yeah. But uh, I think that that's something that we all do is sort of reference what works for us. 
and uh, and sometimes when we have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Like I don't. <laughs> but can, let's talk a little bit about your book and has it been well received and how is it doing? Because I saw somewhere it was one of the top books on the Amazon sales under health. Oh, I didn't know that. I try not to look. <laughs> um, oh. I, I'd rather not know what's going on with it. But no, it's been very well received within the very small community that knows about it. You know, within like, I've, I'm, I'm very much preaching to the choir. Like, I feel like a lot of the people who've bought my book and have reviewed my book, you know, read it because they already read my blog. They already knew about me. They knew me from Twitter. So it was people that already know about low carb. They already know about this type three diabetes concept. What I really need to do is find a way to get this into the hands of people who have never heard of this. And, and it's very hard to do that. Cause like I was saying earlier, these people are sort of like, they're told Everywhere, by, even by their own doctors, there's nothing we can do about Alzheimer's. We don't know what's going on. You know, prepare, you know, get your affairs in order because you're, you're going to inevitably decline. There's nothing we can do. So they don't question that. And it's, it's like my book seems like snake oil. My book seems like nonsense. It seems like, you know, I just made this up out of thin air. Um, and I, so I don't blame them. I understand that. I don't agree, but I understand that perspective. So my book, yes, thankfully, it's been um, almost all the reviews that people have taken the time to post have been very favorable. Um, I've done a lot of podcasts. Certainly, the book has helped educate a lot of people, but I, I need to find a way to get it into the larger world beyond the low-carb community that already knows this stuff. Yeah, that's, that's difficult because yeah. uh, I'm in the same uh, camp when it comes to sports nutrition. Like, I... I believe in periodized nutrition. I think that's worked for me very well, and it's worked for some athletes who have broken many records. So it's not um, it's not like there isn't proof that that it works. It's just that people have been sold that high carb makes you faster, and the transition between being a sugar burner and a carb burner is or a fat burner is not always an easy one, and it takes a little bit of time. And I think that that getting over that hump is what turns people off to the program because mm -hmm. the, um, an example of Zach Bitter and Romain Bardet, when they first started their Romain Bardet's a cyclist who ended up on the podium on the Tour de France two years in a row. And then Zach Bitter who ended up breaking world records. It took them a year of adaptation before they were surpassing their previous times. Mm -hmm. So that's a big amount of time that you have to give up to really see those performance gains. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're an athlete and your livelihood depends on your performance, that, that might be a non-starter for some people. Um, and, you know, like you, you were saying before, you know, when, when all you have is a, is a hammer, everything seems like a nail. Not everybody needs to do this diet, you know, it's right. an option, like whether it's for an athlete or for people with dementia or for people with obesity, with type two diabetes, whatever. I don't care what people eat. I just want people to know there's an option. If they're interested in an alternative to doing whatever they're doing, if what they're doing now isn't working, they should at least know that there might be something else they can do. I don't think, like I even write in my book, does every single person on the planet have to eat a ketogenic diet? No. 
but let it be an option. Let people know it's there if they want to. And, and don't, you know, fear monger, don't try to spread myths and rumors about it. Um, obviously, you know, not everybody who's healthy, not everybody who is a successful professional athlete, not everyone who's aged, you know, gracefully with all their mental faculties intact has followed a ketogenic diet. There's healthy, long-lived, robust, physically fit people all over the world that consume higher carb diets. So I don't think keto is required for everybody, but certainly it's extremely helpful for a lot of us. And, and we, should, we just shouldn't be scared away from it. We should know that it's a viable option. Yeah. In Toastmasters, I, I'm always giving talks. I belong to Toastmasters about nutrition and fitness. And one of the guys came in today and he was reading an article about how a ketogenic diet is bad for you. And it's amazing how there's a lot of fear mongering behind the diet itself. You know, and I don't know what the, the background is of the people who are providing that information, but it almost not that it's a like we are talking about conspiracy theory, but it seems like people get stuck in their own paradigm and don't realize like there's another paradigm that somebody else may have benefit from. I mean, Dr. Atkins was try many people tried to discredit him and still try to discredit him mm -hmm. today. And thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people credit him to changing their health and, and losing lots of weight and, and feeling good. I've heard from numerous people, the only way I can lose weight is if I follow Atkins. I'm like, well, then follow Atkins. Yeah. And they're worried about, you know, having a heart attack. I'm like, really? There's, there's, no, there's no documentation that saturated fat, if you remove the trans fats, there's going to give you a heart attack. And it's just a really... Um, I don't it's really hard for, for people to switch paradigms if they don't have something wrong with them. So I think, which I'm trying, trying to articulate what I'm trying to say, but I think that, you know, somebody who th has thrived on a vegetarian diet, a high carb, low fat vegetarian diet, you know, thinks that, Hey, that, that's, that's a good for everybody. And if someone mm -hmm. else doesn't, if they, they are not thriving, they should try this diet. And um, so they can have the benefits that that person has. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I may even be too open-minded, but I feel like I'm one of the more open-minded people in the, in the low carbon keto community these days, everybody's becoming so, so dogmatic and so much more closed-minded. I am for whatever works. And I know that sounds wishy-washy, but if somebody, like you were saying, there may be somebody that thrives on a vegetarian diet or on a high carb diet. That's the key phrase. If they're thriving, if they are happy with how they feel, how they look, their energy levels, with whatever metric they're using to gauge whether they like the way they feel and look or whatever, then who am I to tell them, well, you feel great, you look great, all your labs look great, but you're doing the wrong diet, you should really eat keto. That's not, that's not any more appropriate than somebody telling somebody not to do keto. I mean, I, I am for whatever works. And um, it's just, yeah, I, I, we, can't, we can't extrapolate from ourselves to anybody else. You know, hey, this thing worked like magic for me, you should try it. Well, okay, they could try it, but they, they shouldn't necessarily expect the same results as you. And that being said, though, I do think 
there's a little too much emphasis on individuality and and all this genetic testing, all these little polymorphisms and stuff, at the end of the day, we're all homo sapiens. We're all humans. Our physiology, the way the human body is structured and what it does, we have so much more in common than we have different. And I think people are like, I'm going to spend $1,000 getting this test and having some you know, nutritionist design a meal plan specifically for me based on my genetics. Like, That's a little much. I think it's a little much, but... I am willing to be wrong. I'm not, I'm not negating the role of genetics. I mean, obviously there are people who have the lactase persistency gene and they can eat milk and dairy just fine. And there's others who don't like, I'm not saying it's, it's irrelevant, but I think there's a lot of people who get way, way deep in the weeds and they miss the forest for the trees. Like, what should I be eating because of MTHFR and what should I be eating because of the COMT polymorphism? Never mind the fact that you're still drinking soda and you're eating frosted flakes. Like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like let's, let's start there. Let's worry about the polymorphisms later. I I agree. I, I had the 20 and three and me test done a long time ago when, before they had the lawsuit against them and they still posted all the, the genetic stuff and a lot of things it says you know they say may or may and some of the things are really true it's like uh i do um i have the genes for obesity so i or whatever that is and it is hard for me to lose weight but i also have the genes for um something with asparagus which is not true or the genes for the difference, how your earlobes, like I may have uh, a little attached or detached earlobe. Uh-huh. And that's not true. And then I have the gene for um, wavy hair, and my hair is very straight. So it's... Well, but here's, here's the interesting thing about genes, because like, like, like let, let's go back to Alzheimer's for a right. second. People watching this video, I assume your fans are kind of like already low carb, already right. keto. And so they may have heard of the APOE4 gene. The APOE4 gene, they actually call it the Alzheimer's gene, although that's very misleading. It, the APOE4 is the largest, strongest known genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's. If you, so we have two copies of every gene, right? One from our mother, one from our father. If you have one copy of this APOE4, you are at increased risk for Alzheimer's. And if you have two copies, you're at like super, super increased risk. However, there are plenty of people who have Alzheimer's disease who don't carry any APOE4 gene. They don't have, they're, you know, they have no APOE4 and plenty of people who have two copies of E4 who do not develop Alzheimer's. So the Alzheimer's gene doesn't cause Alzheimer's or the APOE4 gene doesn't cause Alzheimer's. It radically increases your susceptibility to it in the context of the modern diet and lifestyle. And I don't think, I I think we're sort of in the very, very infancy of learning about genetics and the genetic influence on things, because it could be that there's many, many other genes that are the same way, possibly even for things like wavy hair or attached earlobes, like maybe something either in utero, like in the, in the fetal environment or in your formative years, in your, in your infancy actually determines which of those genes do get expressed and which ones don't. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just speculating, but I feel like, because I know, I know that's true for Alzheimer's disease and it's probably true for a lot of other ones too, that you may carry a certain gene, 
but maybe it just didn't get turned on because of something that did or didn't happen in your development. Right. Sort of like Mark Sisson talks about epigenetics. Mm, exactly. Your, your genes are hold, you're holding a stick of dynamite. And it's whether that dynamite is lit or not, whether you're going to have that problem. I have a strong family history of heart disease. And then according to 23andMe, I have the genes for heart disease. But that doesn't mean I'm going to get heart disease. It's only if I, I may be carrying the, di the stick of dynamite for heart disease, but unless that dynamite's lit, I'm not going to get heart disease. Exactly. Personally, I feel like the diet, the way my diet, my lifestyle now, I don't feel like it will be likely that I, I get heart disease. I did the carnivore study, um, which was, it was actually really good. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm still eating like that because I had such good results. But um, when I did my blood test results, like my triglycerides are low, my cholesterol, although cholesterol we can talk about, you know, that's sort of a irrelevant number, but my total cholesterol is normal. My thyroid function was normal, Every which I used to have a low thyroid, which is mm -hmm. nice. So all of my, um, my doctor was amazed of how healthy I was. I did not tell her I was on the carnivore study, but I'm 48 and she was like, there's not many 48 year olds who aren't on medication. Right. Which is sad in itself. Yes. But, <laughs> So it's, uh, um, I feel like, you know, what I'm doing now is preventing that dynamite being lit. And I think that if people feel like they have an option, like sometimes when people have a gene, people in my family think like we're destined to get heart disease. Both my grandparents and my mom's side died of heart disease. All of my mom's one of nine kids and I believe five of them have had have heart disease mm -hmm. and um so a lot of different factors but if uh if you know that there are things you can do to keep that dynamite from being lit that's pretty empowering and motivating yeah i mean i think uh, i'm kind of an oddball in that i'm not as into all the testing and all the data as a lot of the other people in the keto community seem to be i like to keep things very simple but I do think with things like Alzheimer's, with things like you were saying with heart disease and a ton of other issues, it is probably helpful to have that genetic information because then you can like that might give you extra motivation to take certain protective measures or at least what we currently believe are protective measures um, because, it, you know, if you know that you are at significantly increased risk for Alzheimer's or heart disease or something that might get you to do something you might not otherwise want to do, whether it's a change in diet or, or getting a little bit more active, getting better sleep. Um, you know, I, my mother had very severe complications from type two diabetes. Both of my parents were obese and it's, um, that's my future unless I live differently than they did. And, you know, I don't do it perfectly. Like I still have my stuff that I'm working through, but at least I'm aware of the potential consequences and I can like, you know, modulate my behavior as necessary. Um, yeah, so I, I think we, we just do the best we can. We assume that we can prevent certain things or do as much as we can to potentially prevent them. Yes, I can relate to 
not doing things perfectly. After the carnivore study, I do a race every year, Tour de Tucson. And I did that race and I had great results. I had a PR by, by two miles per hour. Wow. Which is good. Phenomenal. I just was so happy about it. Then Thanksgiving hit. Thanksgiving through New Year's, I just ate whatever I wanted. And mm -hmm. uh, I gained a few pounds. Felt pretty horrible. But then I just got back with it and I'm already... I had to go up a pound size because I had puffed up so much. Mm -hmm. so, but I, so I can relate that it's not, it's hard to, it's, you don't, I don't even think you have to do it perfectly. I think that if you're trending in a way, you, I had a good time over the holidays. I went on vacation. Mm -hmm. I went to Mexico and was on the beach eating chips, salsa and margaritas. And, um, yeah, I did pay the price for it, but I enjoyed my time there. I write about this all the time because people have become so neurotic. Stephanie, I cannot even tell you the kinds of emails I get from people that I can feel the anxiety radiating out of the email that people get so scared about eating a certain thing or like, I haven't touched sugar in 12 years and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, and you sound miserable. Your email yeah. sounds miserable. And, and I'm not advocating like all out eat junk right. food all the time, but like be realistic, you know, um, truly, really like, and I, I see it on Twitter. Like people get so annoyed when like, oh, look at the birthday party. They're having cupcakes or like it's Halloween. I'm not letting my kid have any candy. The fact is, if you really only celebrated the major celebrations if you ate whatever you wanted at thanksgiving at christmas hanukkah new year's you know halloween like punctuated times throughout the year where you just eat whatever you love and all the rest of the time you're doing low carb or keto or paleo or whatever it is the, the thing that you normally do that wouldn't be the problem the problem isn't the massive Christmas dinner or no. the, you know, the, the pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving. The problem is that we are living like it's Thanksgiving 365 days a year. We're eating massive amounts of food. We're eating massive amounts of sugar, massive amounts of liquid sugar every single day. Yeah. That's the problem. Not yeah. the once a month when you go to the Mexican place and eat chips with your family. Like, yeah. I, I know. I, again, like if somebody wants to stay strictly ketogenic all the time, if somebody enjoys never, ever, ever eating more than 30 grams of carbs in a day, great, more power to you, go do it. But don't make somebody feel like they're going to keel over and die from type 2 diabetes tomorrow if they eat a piece of cake at their kid's birthday party. Yeah. And I think there's a difference between like when you're healing. So if you're sick, if I was really sick, when I was sick, I used to be really ill. I had all kinds of problems. I had chronic asthma and uh, I had injuries that wouldn't heal. I was on all kinds of medications and I was really not healthy. I was mu much more strict then. And I gradually, I was on the hormone replacement because my hormones were in the tank. So as I got better and healed, I got off those medications. So I'm not on any medications anymore. And most of the time I eat really well and my performance is getting better. But occasionally, like over the holidays, I did go a little crazy, but the worst thing that happened was I had to put on a bigger pair of pants until, <laughs> so. and since 
since then, I, I cleaned up my diet January 2nd and, uh, and I'm back down to my smaller pants and it's what right. the 11th. So, you know, in a, 10 days I lost the puffiness and I'm back to, to feeling good and normal and riding my bike and feeling awesome. Yeah. So I think that, you know, it depends on what, where you're at too. So if you're, if you're really sick, like you have Alzheimer's dementia or cancer or heart disease or something like that. Yeah. You probably want to be more strict until you have a buffer until you put some money in the bank, you know, your whole, you, you've invested in your health and now you're able to spend some of that investment on. I, I, I totally agree. I think when, when you're healed and you're feeling better, you do have a certain amount of wiggle room. Now that being said, cause I, people, whether it's on podcasts or if I write a blog post or on Twitter, people love to miss nuance. They love to miss the details. So I, I want to like be clear on what I'm saying and probably what you're saying too here. I'm not, I'm not encouraging that people, once, once you feel better, you go back to the same way of eating yeah. that made you sick in the first place. What I'm saying is when your baseline is very healthy and active and you feel well and everything's great, once in a while indulging in something and then moving right along back to your normal diet shouldn't really be a problem. And if you yeah. don't want to do that, don't do it. But you shouldn't be terrified of triggering your, you know, re-triggering your problems or of getting sick again from one meal that's off plan or one day that's yeah. off plan out of how many weeks or months or years you've been low carbing or paleoing or whatever your diet is. But I actually have a blog post coming up about this soon about cheat meals because here's, people get so scared when they have one meal off plan or one item off plan. Um, because sometimes it will kick them out of ketosis. And that's, oh, yeah. first I of all, most yeah. people don't even need to be in ketosis. You can just be low carb. So that's like a non-issue if it kicks you, unless you have a medical requirement to be in ketosis all the time, it's okay to go in and out of ketosis. That's number one. Number two, when the reason I wrote the post on cheat meal, I haven't published it yet, but it's written. The reason I wrote it is because people get so scared, like, oh, how much damage did I do? Should I fast for two days? What can I do to make up for this big treat, for this big, horrible, terrible thing that I've done? Like, let's remove the guilt. And then the, the biggest point that I make in that post is that in, in back before, none of us were born eating low carb, right? We all grew up on the crappy American diet or the crappy Canadian diet or wherever you're from. No, nowhere did we ever think like if you ate one salad or you had one day where you ate really, really healthily, you never said to yourself, well, I ate one really healthy thing. I guess I've totally undone all the crap I've eaten for the past 27 years. Yeah. Like, I guess I'm healthy now. So in the same way, if you've been low carb for six months or 12 months or 17 years, you don't have to say to yourself, oh, I, ate, I ate waffles for breakfast. I guess I've completely undone the 27 years of progress that I've made on this diet. Oh, I, I, had, I, I ate a whole pint of Ben and Jerry's. I guess I'm diabetic again. I guess I've, I've completely you know, negated all the years, all the months that I've been low. Like, no, because it doesn't work that way. It takes a while for your... Yeah. You know, if you think about the life of a cell... Every cell in your body is replaced, except for your, I think your lenses of your eyes are not, which was pretty interesting when I found that out. But 
you think about the life of those cells, you're replenishing those cells with the food you eat. That's what it's growing from. So if you mm -hmm. eat really well most of the time, that's what you're going to be made of. And mm -hmm. then when you eat that crappy meal, yeah, it's going to change some things, but it's not, the volume is not enough to make this huge, gigantic difference. Right. And I also talking about how people get so whacked about food. I think your thoughts matter. Every thought we have is, has a chemical reaction. You're making chemicals in your brain by what you think. So if you're, and your body, you know, your whole body, you make chemicals in your stomach by thoughts too. But if you are thinking happy thoughts or those feelings of being in love or, or you know, being in a beautiful place, you're making dopamine and serotonin and endorphins and all kinds of wonderful um, chemicals that are helping your body. But also whenever you're stressed out and wigged out about what you ate, you're making, you know, producing adrenaline and cortisol and all of those chemicals that are, are shunting your body to deal with those stresses and that instead of dealing with rebuilding. So I think that regardless of if what you're eating, your thoughts are a buffer to that too. Like if you say, I'm going to eat a certain way, like I follow pretty much a zero carb diet because I feel good eating that way. But when I went to Mexico, I went with my best friend and her husband, my best friend from high school and her husband, and they wanted to go out places to eat. And I ate the chips and salsa on the beach with my toes in the sand, watching the waves and drinking a margarita but I didn't think like, oh crap, I just undid my carnivore 90 days of eating meat only. Right. I thought, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy this moment. And I did. And I think that that's, I didn't, you know, I didn't feel good being tight in my clothes, but I, I didn't worry about it because I was like, I know what I can do when I get home to fix that problem. Exactly. And, and I think if we, if someone goes on a cruise and granted, you don't want to go too crazy and make it like a free-for-all like you've been. But if you do things in a reasonable manner and enjoy your time there, and then when you get home, just get back into the same old things. And I, I could not agree more. And, and the part of it is, yeah, if do what you're going to do because you know that you're going to get back to normal soon. Like it's not a big deal. And if, you know, if you have that sort of thing, is your blood sugar going to be sky high? Yeah. Is your insulin going to be sky high? Yeah. Temporarily until you get back to normal. So like, I, again, in this blog post, I'm going to, when it's published, people will read the whole thing. But I say, if you know that you're going to do that, if you're going to a wedding or you're going on a cruise or something, don't test your blood sugar. Why? <laughs> Why are you going to do that to yourself? Now, it's a different story if you're type 1 diabetic or if you're a type 2 diabetic. If you're on medication, it's a different story. You know, I'm not encouraging anyone to, like, do something dangerous. But um, the thought, the thought process you talked about, I love that because I've done that myself. Like, if, you know, if you're someone that has a very severe intolerance to certain foods, like if you eat gluten and you're going to be in the bathroom for three days, then yes, you probably do need to be a lot more vigilant about avoiding certain foods or, if, you know, certain foods really make you sick or they just plain don't make you feel well. That's enough of an excuse to avoid it. Even if you're on a cruise or you're at your friend's right. house, like if something actually makes you feel bad, don't eat it. But, you know, I've had situations where, 
I'm at friends' houses, and there's foods, there's plenty of, you know, low-carb options available for me, but I will still partake of the other stuff that's there because it looks delicious, because it tastes delicious. And so I, I spend... I spend a lot of time by myself. I'm a writer. I work from home. I'm isolated a lot. And so when I am with people and I am with friends, especially good dear friends, because I have, I have dear friends who entertain a lot and they cook a lot. It's such a peaceful, loving, fun environment. And I can tell myself, you know, this food was prepared with love and I'm here enjoying fellowship with, with my friends, with my other humans, great conversation. If we're outside, it's beautiful out. We're looking at the stars. We're dining together. So what? I ate some pasta. You know, like you can just bless the food. I mean, this sounds crazy, but I had a no, friend who was I'm very, 100% in so she was very, very into energy medicine. Yeah. And she would be like, if you're in a situation, no, I, I had, I, I made the choice to eat what I ate. Right. So I was in control of that. But if for some reason you're ever in a situation where it's out of your control, you can't make the choice. You have to eat what's put in front of you. You bless it with love and you consume it and you move on. I think that people have a, I agree. I think that we should love the food that's nourishing our bodies. People have a crazy relationship with food. And I, I mean, definitely I, I used to hate food because I, when I ate, I felt bad, but that's because my whole system was messed up. But the, the, uh, now that I'm well, and I, I'm thankful for the food that nourishes my body and I enjoy eating. And actually I'm doing some testing on eating more in one sitting to see if it revs up my metabolism. So it's mm -hmm. just, I like to test that, but I do agree that blessing the food and, and blessing and feeling like this was made with love. There's a difference than someone looking at food and like a, they, they had a breakup with their boyfriend and they're eating a pint of ice cream. You know, they're <laughs> just shoving that down, trying to like cover up the discomfort of the pain of the breakup. Well, that's not going to, if you eat a, a bowl of ice cream after and coffee after a nice dinner on a patio with your best friends, you know, you're going to have a different response to that food than someone, you know, shoving down ice cream from a breakup. Yeah. And I, I think there's, there may be some people watching this that are like, oh, that's total woo woo. They lost me right there. Like I'm done. And I, I respect that. Everyone has their own yeah. feelings about, you know, energy and whatever you want to call it. But I, I do think there's something to be said about all this, because if you are going to eat, you know, your grass fed steak and your organic spinach cooked in, in, in bacon fat from pastured pigs, and you're miserable because you're sitting there alone and you've had a rough day and you're angry and you're isolated and you wish you could have a donut and you're just miserable. Wouldn't you maybe be better off going to a restaurant with a good friend, getting, you know, not necessarily whatever you want, not getting like lasagna or something, getting a regular piece of chicken yeah. with regular yeah. vegetables and just enjoying yourself. Like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if they've ever actually scientifically evaluated that. I don't even know if they can. I just know how we sort of innately feel in those situations. Well, I don't know if they have either, but I can tell you, I, um, I think that our journey through life should be happy. We should spend more times happy and then appreciate and appreciating it. And even in the sad times, we should have some appreciation for the experiences we have. And I think life just runs smoother in a, 
a mindset of appreciation mm-hmm. instead of a mindset of um, irritation and disgust. And um, I went to Tony Robbins, his, um, what is it called? My, one of my clients bought me a ticket to see Tony Robbins, which was cool. And um, were you walking? Did you on? do the fire walk? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I, because I've done stuff like that before, it wasn't a big deal to me. Like uh-huh. it's a big deal to some other people. Well, you've, you've done like endurance races like crazy and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're used to challenging yourself. <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking, you know, it's not a big deal, but it was huge for a lot of people. And my good friend was there. And he had said that um, he took his two daughters and one of them was 16 and 14. And when they walked across those coals, they thought like that was amazing for them. I mean, Uh you could not, the smiles on their face was amazing. But Tony Robbins talks a lot about whatever you think the problem is, is not the problem. So a lot of times people have angst with food. Whenever they have angst, they hate their job yes. or they, they have a bad relationship or that they have. And, you know, whenever you can start resolving those relationships with food, you can start to see, oh, I'm not handling this situation well or, or I'm not handling like I. And I think sometimes because people don't want to deal with those backdoor situations like. I don't like how my husband treats me. I'm not comfortable with standing up to him. So I'll just make food my issue. I could not agree more. This is not talked about anywhere near enough in the low carb community. I, I try to talk about it when I can because I get so many clients whose diet is excellent. They're already working out. They're already doing so many of the things that I would have told them to do, but they're already doing it. And I have to alert them to the fact that, hey, this is not a diet problem. Like you, you need a divorce or you need a new job or you yeah. need a babysitter once a week. You and your husband need to go on a date night once a week. Like people don't, they don't realize how much of an effect that other stuff has on their health, their health and their weight both. But yes. They want to make it a food problem because truly it's easier to change your diet than it is to get a new job or than it is to admit that you are no longer in love with your partner or to admit that you're really stressed out and you need some time away from the kids. It's so much easier to just take a supplement or to change your diet. And for a lot of people, that's not the issue. It's, um, I'm so glad you said it because I feel like and people don't want to hear it. Because yes. it's, it's hard. It's hard to hear. And I, I tell them, you know, yeah. I'm not a counselor. I'm not qualified to help you with this problem. All I can do is bring your attention to the fact that I think this is the problem. It has nothing to do with your diet. Yeah, I d- agree. And that's, I do the same thing with my clients. Like I'm helping them through training and then somebody who's chronically getting sick or injured. I'm like, you know what? The training plan, the race that you have in mind, you know, that should not be your goal. You're trying to I don't say it always, but you're trying to run away from the situation you have here. You know, and a lot of endurance athletes, I mean, I've been in the endurance sport field for a long time. I used to work for team and training, which had large groups of endurance athletes. So I, I've seen people who, who've trained and trained and trained and they're running away from their situation. They spend a lot of their time training because they want to be home. Right, right. What are you, what are you running from? If, if anyone out here is a fan of Rob Wolf, you know, the paleo guy, like yeah. 
I once heard him say that and I was like, whoa, because, you know, he gets a lot of what I when he was still working with people individually, he would get a lot of athletes and there would be people like, well, I run eight to 10 miles every day. And he'd be like, what are you running from? (laughs) Not that and I'm not disparaging endurance training, like if you enjoy it and it does something to you, but if you, you know, there's some people who like literally feel like they're going to die if they miss one run. Or they, they get really antsy if like right. there's like something comes up, an emergency comes up and they can't run for it's one a, day. It's an addiction. And for me, the definition of an addiction is that interrupt you put in to deal with life, to deal with things that you don't want to deal with in life. And addiction, I mean, that's my definition. And I think we all have addictions. Oh, we, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all have addictions. Because there's always something in life that like, hey, I would rather not make that phone call that's uncomfortable or, or for whatever reason. But, um, you know, how big is that interrupt? Is that interrupt is like, you know, like we talked about before, is that dealing with your spouse or having stress with your children? You know, there's a big difference in running because you're stressed out all the time. You're like, I have to run because I'm so anxious, which that can be good for you or running because man, I just want to get outside and look at the trees and smell the flowers and have the sun hit my skin. Like there's a totally different mindset and there's a whole totally different reaction to your body for those two different scenarios. And I think that people discount that. I think that, you know, there's food is one aspect of a healthy person. We have to have, you know, good social environment. We have to have good, uh, good sleep you know, and, uh, Steve, um, I've, I've been reading, you know, I'll just be honest, like, because of some of my own issues and my own lifestyle, like I've been learning more about the effects of loneliness on physical health, Oh yeah, physical health, like loneliness, isolation is like this huge risk factor, regardless of your diet, regardless of other stuff. And it's like, that's so fascinating. It's terrible and sad, but it's fascinating to me. And um, it's, you know, you said we're all addicted to something and we are, I mean, and it's, you know, some, I don't know that I have this definition of addiction, but some people will say that addiction is when you are compelled to engage in a certain behavior, even past the point when it's negatively affecting you. So some people do that with running, right? Or they do it with diet. People get orthorexia. They become too concerned about diet or like when exercise is actually causing, you're doing it so much with, with not enough rest and nutritional repletion that you're damaging your joints, you're damaging your immune system. You know, when, when we still engage in behaviors that we used to enjoy that used to be beneficial, but they've crossed the the, the tipping point into being harmful. That's the addiction. But People might be thinking, well, you know, I don't gamble, I don't, I don't shop, I don't have compulsive eating, I don't drink alcohol. Like, those aren't the only addictions, and I see it all the time online. You can be addicted to criticism, you can be addicted mm-hmm. to negative thinking, you can be addicted to being angry with people. Those are ugly addictions to that, like because you'll see, you'll see, you know who they are. The people yeah. on Twitter who never ever have anything nice to say about anybody. They're always picking something apart or always criticizing somebody. That's an addiction. Yeah. And I, I think that those, those, those can't possibly be good for health. <laughs> I don't know. No. I mean, it's not, it's not good to keep all those emotions bottled up either, but when every single thing you say and think and do is negative, either toward yourself or toward somebody else, what good is that? Yeah. I, 
I agree. I wish I was closer to you. I would be your friend, Amy. <laughs> no, I just need to get out of the house more. I mean, I am naturally a, an introvert, but because of my lifestyle the last couple of years, it's fed into itself. And I've become like, I, I just hermit. I've become even more of an introvert. So like, and now I work from home and it's like, hmm. <laughs> you know, sometimes I read your posts because we have to do similar things like your little pose, your little picture of the guy who's waiting to the people leave the hall. So he doesn't have to make small talk. And, you know, I have to do the same thing, but the problem isn't that I don't want to make small talk is that I know I will make small talk and waste time. So I'm an extreme extrovert. Oh, that's I, right. We've, we've talked about this before yes. online. <laughs> yes. I'm an extreme extrovert and I literally have to tell myself, tear your way self away from the conversation or I love to dominate the conversation. So if I'm with other extroverts, I start to get irritated that I can't talk. And I have to tell myself, calm the frick down, Stephanie. You're not the center of attention. It's okay if someone else talks. That is funny. <laughs> so it's, uh, I think that we end up having to do similar things, but for completely opposite. Yeah, spectrum. that's funny. But hopefully someday I'll actually meet you at a conference or something like that. I'm sure we will. Yeah. And there's more and more of those popping up now. And now I'm actually forcing myself to attend some of them. So well, I think that you would be a great speaker at some of them, but I just love all your work. And I think that, you know, we have a similar mindset of approaching, you know, diet, nutrition and health, although we have different probably target audiences because right. my audience is strictly um, endurance athletes. I try not to have anybody who doesn't actually have a specific race goal. I've had athletes that have been referred to me who don't have an actual race goal. And really after I give them the basics, I feel like, what can I do for you? I can't, mm -hmm. I, we aren't having productive conversations to get them further. Cause I've, if I've given you the information and then you have like what to eat, how to manage stress. I actually have a guide of train your brain to be happy guide. I'll email it to you and you can yeah. tell me what you think, but, or I'll post in the notes of the podcast. So it's just exercise. You know, if you could had all the money in the world, what would you do each day to make a difference in, in it? Or, you know, just simple things like that. Hmm. But I think that, um, once you get to a certain point, unless we're progressing towards a specific goal, I really would rather them work with someone else besides me, which that sounds a little snotty, but I just, um, I just like working with people, you know, working towards it, something. Right. No, it's not snotty. You have, you have to know who's a good fit for you, you know, because there's other practitioners that are better at something else. So yeah. Yeah. There's, there's good people to refer them to. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are coming up on time and I just don't want to take up all your time, but I very, very much appreciate talking to you and this interview. And I think that um, your clients are lucky to have you and okay. such a caring individual. And I'm so thankful you put the book out there because maybe right now, at least it's out there for someone to find it. Right. So if there, if it wasn't out there, somebody who was looking wouldn't have anything to find. And eventually like, you don't know what lives you've changed. I'm sure that some people have contacted you and say, this has made a big difference. And uh, so I think that I appreciate that your book's out there and, and I refer all kinds of people to it. 
I really appreciate that. Thank you. And it's, it's called the Alzheimer's Antidote for anyone out there. It, it is available on Amazon. And uh, most, I have yet to see it in a brick and mortar store. I check if I'm passing by a bookstore, I go in. I have not ever seen it on a shelf yet, but I'm sure it's, it's probably in Barnes and Noble here and there somewhere, but it is on Amazon. So if you're, here's a challenge for the audience. If you are out there and you go to a brick and mortar store and you don't see it on the shelf, if you could just ask for it. Re request that they carry it. Request that they carry it. That will help Amy and it'll also help our community of getting the word out there to really help people look, feel, and perform better. Because I don't know about Amy, but my goal for my clients isn't that they get on the podium, which a lot of my clients do, but my goal is so they have a healthy, happy life that they, they have a balance between their, their physical fitness and mental fitness and performance. So, thank you so much, Amy. I will uh, put your website in the show notes and right. I will also um, put a link to your book on Amazon. Okay. Thank you.